Hello and welcome to the Curator of Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco Radio. We speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Colson Whitehead. You're on the overpass, you zip by it, and then when you're in a criminal mind, you think... Wouldn't it be a good place to stash somebody for a couple of days <laughs> as a hostage? You rubbing um, your hands together yeah, yeah, at, the, yeah. at the study desk, right? And yeah. also, I can't think of a single movie that it's been in. You know, yeah. I can't think of any book that it's been in. So it's right in the middle of my home island. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never seen it. Plus, our favorite spots in Lisbon. So this is the Depósito da Marinha Grande. It's been here for over four decades. It's the first factory of glassware of Portugal. It's located in Marinha Grande, which is north of Lisbon. It's from the 1700s, established by Marquês de Pombal. And since then, it's become sort of this institution for glassware in Portugal. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And we start the show with a great highlight from Monaco and Culture this week. Over the years, the two-time Pulitzer-winning prize writer Colson Whitehead has turned his hand to non-fiction, zombie thrillers and historical fiction. His new book, Crook Manifesto, is the second in his Harlan trilogy, which is set on the chaotic streets of 70s New York. Robert Bounds sits down with the author to discuss this exciting new heist novel. Carney caught the one train at 125th Street and grabbed a seat on the east side of the car. The Manhattan Viaduct lifted the train tracks 168 feet above Broadway and 125th, and if you didn't have your nose in a book or the daily paper or a tattered ledger of regrets, the view was a pleasant reprieve from the gloomy tunnel. It held no charm for Carney. If he sat on the opposite side, he was liable to see his old place, caddy corner to the tracks, which for many years had made him a captive audience to the Viaduct's longest-running show. It was the same performance, repeated without variation, the curtain rising multiple times an hour, relentlessly exploring through choreography and noise a single theme of the human condition, you can't afford a better apartment. Colson, thank you so much for your time today and congratulations I'm on a beautiful second helping of this trilogy. There's so many things to pick up on in Crook Manifesto, this, this second novel in this series. Um, but the first, the first thing that I'd like to ask you about is Harlem and New York itself. It's such a, it's such a busy, vibrant, unputdownable character in the book. Um, and I wanted to ask you first about your research process for it, your own memories of the city and how they kind of came together, the fact and the fiction you walking the streets and looking at things on Google Maps, no doubt, and how they came together to form the soul of the book, I guess. Sure, yeah. I mean, I was a, a very young child in the early 70s, so mm-hmm. don't have many memories of this period, so that does mean a lot of research. What I do recall was that the city was dirty, people were tense, you know, crime was at an all-time high. That doesn't get you very far in the, in the book. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I've been on this run of doing what people call historical novels. For me, mm-hmm. they're just novels set in the past, but people like that term, so I'll go with it. <laughs> and usually, you know, primary sources are a great resource. In Underground Railroad, it was slave narratives. In Nickel Boys, it was survivor accounts from the Dozier Academy, the model for the mm-hmm. Nickel Academy. And this book, it's been newspapers, whether I'm trying to figure out 
what's happening in New York City politically that I can use for the book. Sometimes it's a bigger event in Crook Manifesto. The opening section takes place in 1971, and there's a big historic police corruption investigation called the, the Knapp Commission underway, and that allows me to bring in my corrupt detective Munson into the story. As you said, there's a lot of walking around. You know, I lived there when I was a little kid, but never hung around in Harlem that much. So it's as alien to me, you know, as as Georgia in the Underground mm-hmm. Railroad. Yeah. So I would just walk around, location scouting, trying to figure out where would be a good block on, on 125th for Carney to work, a good place for him to grow up, across from the subway tracks. And if it's across from the subway tracks, is it better to be 127th Street or 135th Street? And which... What can you see from those windows? So all that kind of stuff. Yeah, which has got light, which has got shade at certain times of day that where certain acts might be perpetrated or certain people might hang out, believably, I suppose. But as you point out in both of these novels so far, so much changes in, in this area and indeed in the whole city, right? Yeah, and also, you know, stays the same. I mean, yeah. uh, if you go down 125th Street now, you're going to see The Gap, you're going to see Starbucks and Shake Shack and all the big corporate stores you see everywhere, you see in London and Bristol. But go one block north, and you're going to see the townhouses and brownstones that have been there for 150 years, and near the homes of the first Italian, German, Jewish settlers from Europe who came, who were replaced by black folks from the south. And now 130 years later, the great-grandkids of those first white settlers are coming back to gentrified Harlem Mm -hmm. because it's cheap. And yeah. uh, the cycle continues. So yeah. I find that, you know, very lovely to see and also, you know, uh, fun to chronicle. Yeah. And there's something, as you say, you grew up around there, certain parts of it, but it wasn't, your, you know, you don't have a deep memory, I suppose, at that time. And I'm sure your research was deep. But there's something happily unknowable. It feels like the narrator and it feels certainly the reader, certain types of reader anyway, are getting lost in these streets, happily lost. Even at the end of this, of Crook Manifesto, Ray Carney, your your protagonist, goes to a place underneath an underpass, a disused biscuit factory that he's never been to and he kind of can't believe he, there's an area of the city that even he doesn't know as a kind of tried and distrusted and tested <laughs> member of the community. So I felt like you're, you're happily getting lost as a writer. Colton. No, totally. I mean, that area, it's a real place. It's mm. a warehouse district in the 130s of uh, West Harlem. And you never go, you never walk there. You're on the overpass, you zip by it. And then when you're in a criminal mind, you think, wouldn't it be a good place to stash somebody for a couple of days <laughs> as a hostage? You rubbing um, your hands together yeah, yeah, at, the, yeah. at the study desk, right? And yeah. also, I can't think of a single movie that it's been in. You know, yeah. I can't think of any book that it's been in. So it's, even though it's right in the middle of my home island, mm-hmm. um, I've never seen it. Part of the, the sort of zinging, living fabric of the city is, is the language that is, seems to emanate from the sidewalks, obviously from your characters' mouths. We're talking about a heist novel and a genre novel. I know that I'm not putting quote marks around it, but it is there is such a thing. It uses some of those tropes and some of those epigrams and zingers that are part of the, I guess, noirish kind of tradition as well. They seem to kind of come up from the pavement and emanate from your characters, your characters' mouths. What about getting the language of the city down? Was that easier than traipsing the streets to research each corner? Well, I mean, there's a... A New York personality I'm trying to channel, and I'm mm. sure it, it overlaps with you know people in different cities. Mm. You know, you're cranky, you have little patience, and whether you're a master criminal or a petty thief or a Wall Street fat cat 
or someone just trying to get home so they can make dinner for your kids, there's a certain, you know, survival attitude and a cynicism. You know, one of the big models for the book is a movie called The Taking of Pelham 123. It's an early 70s movie about some criminals who take a subway car hostage and put all the commuters up for ransom. And even though there there are machine guns in their faces, it's just a bunch of complaining, whining New Yorkers in this subway (laughs) car. And there's something beautiful about it. No matter what happens to you, you remain your essential New Yorkness. And so I'm trying to capture that definitely in in Carney, but also the supporting cast. You know, we're all stuck on this island together. Try and make it home, you know, at at the end of the day. And now, a highlight from the foreign desk, which was, of course, all about Zimbabwe. But this time, we have a very personal reflection from our very own Georgina Godwin. I left on the 30th of October 2001, and that was because I was a radio presenter for the state broadcaster, the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation, and we took a challenge to the Supreme Court saying that it was unconstitutional for the state to have a broadcast monopoly. Unthinkably, almost, we won, which meant that I resigned on air that morning and that evening was crawling around on the top of a tall building setting up an aerial and Zimbabwe's first independent radio station. It kept going for a week and then... Then it was shut down by presidential decree. The president at the time was Mugabe and the sort of guns and boots of the police. And we all sort of scattered, obviously. And from then on, I came here. We established the station on shortwave, me and a team of people, not just me on my own. And we broadcast into Zimbabwe. So that would consist of us phoning people and recording their story and then playing it out so that people down the road could understand what was happening. And that became particularly relevant during elections because they were there were elections almost immediately after we left and so we were telling people who were being turned away from polling stations it's okay there's one 10 minutes down the road go to that one and it was like playing catch up you know but then also interviewing so many people to whom such terrible things had happened the level of violence was almost incomprehensible what is your current status now with Zimbabwe as you understand it? Are you simply not able to go back? Have you been formally told that or do you just assume that that's the case? I think it was in 2003 uh, I was officially made an enemy of the state. Now, I may have gone back there, perhaps on a different passport in the interim, but it's not something that I would do again. I feel that the transfer of power from Mugabe to Mnangagwa, I wouldn't say that Mugabe and I had any kind of relationship. We were aware of each other and there was some kind of almost gentleman's honour, I'd say, about him. I think we must never forget that Munangagwa is a former spy chief. He mm-hmm. was in charge of the killings in Matabililand, the genocide in Matabililand, and I absolutely would not go to any place at all where one felt that he had any kind of control over one's destiny. So what's it like for you now watching yet another Zimbabwean election and there should probably be inverted commas around election to an extent taking place? I feel absolutely humbled and I bow my head in astonishment and admiration for the people who are campaigning and who are going out there day after day, who keep on fighting, who keep on saying we can win this, who keep on trying to do things by the book, by the constitution, have legal cases and all the rest of it. Because I think that for many, many Zimbabweans, the country is so poverty stricken. People are in such a dire strait. 
people just want to get on with their lives. They're just trying to survive. And for anybody who's really pushing for an election win, good on them. I'm sorry, but I don't feel it's ever going to happen. I fear I have now lost hope, having been on this cycle time and time again and thinking this time we can do it. Surely they can't steal it again. And I think that I'm not alone by hoping that this time all we manage to do is avoid a huge amount of violence. We know the result. We just hope nobody gets hurt on the way. Is there more that could or should be done by Zimbabwe's, well, partners seems the wrong word, overseas, but especially a country like the one we are broadcasting from, which, of course, has an intimate, let's call it intimate, historical connection with the country? Well, Britain, of course, Zimbabwe's former or Rhodesia's former colonial master. I think this country has behaved reprehensibly the entire way through. And just recently, Munangagwa, Zimbabwe's president, was invited to the king's coronation. I got in touch with uh, the Foreign Office, I got in touch with the Palace, and I got in touch with the Archbishop of Canterbury and asked them all why this was the case, given that Zimbabwe Defence Industries is a state-owned company run by the state, and that's on the list of targeted sanctions. Therefore, Munangagwa should not have been allowed in this country. So what's happening is that Britain is trying to establish a relationship. Munangagwa, I think, is keen to come back into the Commonwealth. It's all going to sort of be massaged in a way, I think, that eventually all will be forgiven and forgotten, a little bit like what you've seen happening with with MBS from Saudi Arabia. And this is just such a blow, such disrespect for the Zimbabwean people, people who have fought so hard for their independence, people who have really, really given everything they have for the struggle to be let down by Western powers who could help, who could be doing things, who could be putting more pressure on the country. And that's just not happening. I want to close by getting across some sense of of what those people striving for change in Zimbabwe are hoping for, because Zimbabwe is one of those countries that always gets talked about when people talk about the countries where you just think it doesn't have to be like this, a bit like Russia or Iran. This is a country which is stopped only by the people from governing it, from being a prosperous, peaceful, orderly and entirely agreeable nation. Look, there's one major problem with Zimbabwe, which is that it's a kleptocracy and those in power have been and will and are stealing from the people. And if that money was not going into private pockets, it would be going out to help people in in the country. We used to be the best educated population in Africa. We used to feed Africa. Now people can't afford to go to school anymore. People live subsistence existences. They sell little things on the side of the road. They plough pitiful pieces of land. Listen, I don't want to do my country down. Some people are doing extremely well. I'm talking about those who have nothing and there are far too many of them. There are some wonderful, wonderful entrepreneurs there and business people who are stopped time and time again from reaching their full potential because the government is stealing absolutely everything. And they're also doing that through their central bank and through the way that they deal with currency, how people who have US dollars suddenly find that their Zimbabwe dollars are are worthless and so on. Can I just give my own experience? And honestly, I believe I am so, so privileged and I never, ever forget that. My parents owned a four-bedroom house on a two-acre plot of land with a swimming pool. And my mother got £300 for that house. 
And whilst I recognise that having 300 quid and having had the enormous privilege of growing up in a home like that, that is how hyperinflation works. And honestly, we are one of the lucky ones. So many people have been done down so much worse than that. And, you know, if people want to know more about this, my brother, Peter Godwin, who's also a journalist, has written some really fantastic books about Zimbabwe, Makiwa, a white boy in Africa, but particularly about our story, which is called When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, and his latest one, The Fear. And that really does tell you everything about what happened during Zimbabwe's last big election, when the results were postponed for seven weeks. I'm really hoping that doesn't happen this time. You are listening to The Curator here on Monaco Radio. We stay with Georgina, this time a highlight from the briefing. Australia's ancient primary forest is being destroyed. Enormous centuries, old trees in Tasmania are being pulped for short-term paper products. Leading a protest against this destruction is Bob Brown, Australian politician who served as a member of the Australian Senate and as a leader of one of the world's first green parties, the Australian Greens, until 2012. Let's hear his conversation with Georgina. The Tasmanian forests uh, were more intact than those in most of Australia and most of the rest of the world. It's simply an accident of uh, we didn't have colonisation by the British until the 1803. And these forests are in remote mountainous areas. But of course, with modern roads and uh, modern technology, including cable logging, which allows, which has been brought in from Canada and allows logging at mountainsides, they are now able to get at the forests. Um, we have in previous campaigns been able to protect some of the forests in the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area which takes in quite a few of those mountains, but most of the forests were left out and there's a million hectares which they're now working, including in the large unprotected Tarkine wilderness on the northwest corner of Tasmania, where the island state to the south of the Australian continent. And that's got the largest temperate rainforest in Australia. And in amongst that, as elsewhere in Tasmania, are these giant eucalypts. They're the tallest flowering plants on earth. Some of them scrape just below and just above 100 metres. That's a football field in length, if you can imagine, turned on side. And uh, they're being serially logged, largely exported, although 70% of the tree material is left on the ground and is napalmed. It's burnt in fire storms which kill every everything from the... Um, the microbial matter to the fauna, the birds, the the plants. It's meant to prevent any native plants growing back when they plant fast-growing uh, tree plantations after the forest has been removed or destroyed. Aren't ancient forests like this protected by law? And what do the authorities say about it? Well, uh, 20 years ago, the federal government signed an agreement with the states to exempt the states, including Tasmania, but also a big forest in Victoria and New South Wales, from uh, federal environment laws and said, um, under an agreement which was farcical, which said to Tasmania, well, you look after it, uh, protect the federally listed rare creatures like the Tasmanian devil, which is the largest 
uh, carnivorous marsupial left on Earth, uh, the giant Tasmanian wedge-tailed eagle, and uh, the barn owl, Tasmanian barn owl, which is the largest barn owl on Earth, uh, and also the swift parrot, which depends on these forests for nesting. It, it uh, migrates to the mainland in winter, mainland Australia, but it comes back down south to Tasmania to nest and therefore to reproduce in summer. And they're actually cutting the trees that these birds nest in. And whereas there are flocks of thousands uh, when Europeans arrived, there's, they're now down to 300 pairs and they're listed internationally as critically endangered. They're the fastest parrot on earth. They're about the size of a budgerigar, but they are absolutely sensational birds of flying. Mm. And they depend upon these trees and they're being logged and, of course, they're headed to extinction. So we are mounting bigger and bigger campaigns to try to protect these birds' nesting site. And I, for one, was arrested peacefully getting in the way of bulldozers uh, and and face um, up to three years in jail uh, when my case comes before the magistrate's court in uh, in December in a couple of months' time. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Join Monocle's editors and some of the world's best and brightest in Bavaria for the 8th Monocle Quality of Life Conference, happening in Munich from the 31st of August to the 2nd of September. From business and culture to urbanism and current affairs, you can expect three days of big interviews and thought-provoking panels, plenty of networking, plus a chilled glass of wine or a frosty stein if you want to feel at home in the beer garden. Tickets are almost gone, so be sure to visit conference.monocle.com now and secure your place. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle Radio, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Time now for a highlight from Monocle on Design. Pet Lamp is an ongoing project where unique handmade lampshades are produced by Spanish product designer Álvaro Catalan de Ocon. Created from pet plastic bottles woven into traditional basket forms, these shapes showcase various weaving techniques from different corners of the world. Initially started as a means to highlight the issue of plastic pollution in Colombia, the project is now in its 10th year and has since spanned continents, with Alvaro collaborating with weavers from Ethiopia, Ghana, Chile, Thailand and Japan. We caught up with Alvaro in Madrid to find out more about the project. Twelve years ago, when, when it, the spark started, people were not talking about plastic waste in the Amazon River in Colombia. No? So it was like the chance to tell a story through a design project, so have a product which might be 
like a manifesto product, which is telling you something, no? And considering taking like design like a protest design. We came up with a very simple idea, which was picking up those plastic bottles and then looking for different crafts around the country, which could turn those bottles into another object. So it was upcycling, it was reusing, not recycling because there wasn't the infrastructure to recycle locally, but we had some of the best weavers in the world you know, and some of the best crafts. So the idea was to combine that industrial product with the most down-to-earth craft which humans have been developing since we started doing things with our hands, you know, which is basket making. It started in Colombia, but next year we took it to Chile. We worked there with Wicker, and the year after we went to Ethiopia, Addis Abeba, where we used a different technique, which was coiling. Next year we went to Japan, Kyoto, where we worked with uh, master weavers in bamboo. Back to Chile and worked with weavers. Went to Australia, where we worked with a community of eight weavers in Ramenginning, in Aramland, to be able to intensely work with these eight weavers and make one single piece, which went to the National Gallery of Victoria. We start by analyzing the local textile technique and the material they use. And from there, we look at weaving techniques around like a circular weaving, like when you do hats, no, or that kind of products, which, which works well with, with our method of weaving. And then we let a lot of freedom to the weavers. No? So that way, it becomes a real collaboration, and also they have a real knowledge on, on this. It really took the project to a different level when we understood how far we could take it with them. No? We give them the freedom to play with the patterns, with the colors, and we work on the method on how to cut the bottle. And then also we decide the shapes to build a collection which is coherent and distinct. We've had to improvise a lot in this project because you never know what you're going to find in these journeys. We go for a month, for two months, and really every time it's an adventure. We go with a very open idea and then we start developing the product as we go. And that's what makes it also more natural, more personal to the place we are working with. From the beginning of my studio, even before Petlamp, I decided to only make one project a year and concentrate on it and move it forward until we were having the idea, manufacturing it and distributing it, you know, self-producing, which is very, I find it very honest because you think twice what you do and you really can concentrate on one idea. And in this case, we've taken the project for 10 years, no? but in a parallel way, we were doing also a different product every year. No? So it was like a new pet lamp and another thing, which had nothing to do with pet lamp. Somehow to keep the head also moving in different directions. When you work with weavers and when you work with countries where this work really means something for them, really makes a difference in their economy. Uh, for me, the worst scenario is really going there, uh, making a workshop, coming back to Europe with 50 beautiful lamps, showing them in a fancy gallery and then disappearing, you know, because that's like bringing up expectations, which, which is the worst scenario for a weaver. Instead, we feel very responsible for keeping this alive. We ask the weaver to keep doing the product after we leave for as long as there's a demand on it. And we buy the product beforehand, 
we buy a certain amount every month so he can have a constant income. I mean, in Colombia, they are weavers which have been displaced by the guerrilla war in Bogotá and they have nothing, but they come to the city with an incredible know-how no? and an incredible culture and empowering them in this is very important. And imagine in these countries where there's an economy of a day-to-day -day economy, what the pandemic must have meant for them, where they had to stay at home, you know, and this project really has empowered them to be able to live and to work, keep their families together, and I mean, I think we've, we feel very responsible, you know, for keeping this alive. And to discuss a historic day for India, we had a great guest on the Monaco Daily this week. It's Maya Sharma, journalist based in Bengaluru, where the Indian space agency ISRO has its headquarters. Maya, first of all, it is four years more or less since the Vikram lander on Chandrayaan-2 crashed on the surface of the moon. So the success of this mission, how would you say uh, the response is best characterized? Is it relief or joy? It's a very, very strong feeling of overwhelming joy, but definitely a huge amount of relief as well mixed into it. Because, as you said, the 2019 failure, the crash landing of Chandrayaan back in 2019, well, it really hurt the space program. It hurt the people who were watching. And definitely it was a huge setback. And there was that feeling of grief almost in July 2019 when Chandrayaan 2 didn't make it which made the victory now, the success today, even sweeter, with Chandrayaan-3 doing what its predecessor couldn't do, making that soft landing on the South Pole, near the South Pole of the Moon, for the very first time, the very first country to do so. So yes, the bitter disappointment of 2019, making today's victory all the sweeter for the Space Research Organization, Indian Space Research Organization, and for the country as well. I mean, it is headlines all over the world, and deservedly so, but how is India's media in particular reporting this? Oh, my, the whole of India seemed to have been watching the moon for the last several days. We've had schools open in the evening so that students could watch the live program. We've had launch parties. There have been temple visits, of course, in this very religious country. It was televised live on the national television and the YouTube feed from the ISRO space resort, the ISRO ISRO, seems to have broken some kind of records in terms of the number of people who are watching it. It's been massive here in India. I think we're always waiting for good news. And I think for India today, it was good news, which was really welcome. We've got celebrities tweeting. I mean, if I can still use the word tweet, there are lots of posts on social media from celebrities, from ordinary people. It's been a day definitely of celebration and pride also. And very nice of Isra as well to say it was a celebration and achievement for the entire country. Well, Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister, has, of course, uh, been very keen to associate himself with India's space programme and its its connection to the, the national prestige he wishes to foster. He, he has today described uh, this mission as the dawn of a new era. Is it entirely clear that he really means anything by that, or is this just the kind of thing that national leaders say at such a moment? <laughs> he did indeed say that the success belongs to all humanity and that India's success will help other countries' moon missions as well, that it was success not just for India alone. But as you said, yes, he's definitely wanting to be associated with this. His image did pop up from South Africa, where he is presently at the BRICS meeting in Johannesburg, but it did pop up. He did pop up just before the 
touched down off Chandrayaan 3 and he was very, very visible in all of the footage just before the landing itself. It is, of course, turning political as well to a certain extent with the opposition Congress reminding people on social media and otherwise that India's space program is decades old. It's It has received successes over the last several years, even before 2014 when Prime Minister Modi took over. But he is definitely very keen on a good public perception, a good international perception of his leadership. And he did not, as you said, lose this opportunity really to talk about India and what it could contribute to the world. And of course, he was very, very visible at the touchdown. Around the time of the Chandrayaan 2 failure, India did uh, try to claw back some uh, ground by reminding the world of the relative frugality uh, of its space program and pointing out that they'd spent less on that mission than some Hollywood studios have spent making movies uh, about space missions. Uh, That line has been wheeled out again uh, this week and quite justifiably so. The, The official headline figure on this is 75 million US dollars, which in the context of space exploration is absolute beans. Um, is it also important to it, India's, you know, pro, what India is trying to project to the world that they are able to do this um, without spending nearly as much money as some of their rivals? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's around $75 million under £60 million. It is a fraction indeed of, yes, Hollywood movies and also of other space programs of other countries as well. It has been done cheaply. And for those questioning whether India could have other priorities when it came to spending, well, hopefully it's not a zero-sum game and that progress can be made in different areas at once. An advantage, though, for this low cost is that India is also trying to establish itself when it comes to the global launch market. It has, of course, done launches for other countries, other satellites. They're hoping that with the success, they could they're showcasing what India can do and maybe get some more business that way. So it could, of course, be revenue as well. And even in terms of, well, commercialization of the moon, although we may not like to think of it that way, the exploration, the looking for minerals, the looking for elements there, whether, of course, a space station could be set up on the moon in terms of uh, people actually finding water there, which could be usable. I mean, Chandrayaan-1 did find water there, but whether that water could be usable. So yes, by cutting costs, if they make themselves more attractive as a space launch destination, well, Indian space science would very much like to show that as well. And just finally, uh, nobody, I'm sure, wants to rush ISRO. They are entitled uh, to enjoy this moment of triumph. But what is next? Because the, the obvious progression would seem to be is there going to be a crewed mission? This would not be the first Indian in space. Uh, it is nearly 40 years since Wing Commander Raka Sharma uh, flew aboard a Soyuz T-11 as part of the Soviet program. So we've had at least one Indian cosmonaut. But h- how far off are we, do you think, the first proper Indian astronauts? Well, yes, the Gaganyan mission is very much on in ISRO, and that will be a manned space mission indeed. My goodness, 14 years, 40 years since Rakesh. It's very difficult to think of that. But yes, there is a Gaganyan mission which will take astronauts who are also already been, they've been selected, they're being trained as well. So India will be looking to get that underway very, very soon. A manned mission, Indian astronauts on an Indian craft, is very much on the cards. And this Success today will certainly be an encouragement for Gaganyan as well. Chandrayaan will definitely encourage work being done on Gaganyan to take Indian astronauts into space. 
You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. Time now for a highlight from my show, The Stack, about the world of print. And of course, I head to France this week. I had the pleasure to speak with Laurence Remille from Technicart, a magazine that looks at pop culture in a very fun way. We have this sort of tagline under the title of the magazine, Accelerateur d'idée, which means uh, Ideas Accelerator. And that's a sort of very grandiose way of saying that we want to present new ideas, new progressive ideas, uh, sort of avant-garde kind of contents in the most fun way possible. So I think that the way to sum that up would be to say that we try and be as pop as possible. I mean, I know a lot of people, a lot of media people these last few years have been using the words pop and pop culture a lot. But I think that that's the best definition of what we do is something very pop in the you know tradition of interview magazine, uh, Warhol's interview magazine, in the tradition of uh, English titles like The Face, you know, something like uh, everything that Nick Logan did in England was very important to, to Technicart, so The Face, even smash hits for myself. I had the chance of, uh, you know, spending my adolescent years in North London, so smash hits was very important. And then the NME, Melody Maker, The Face, and later on, um, Spy, Private Eye, all these, all these titles that you know and people here in France don't necessarily know about. They've fed, anyway, my approach of what, I, what I've been doing at Technicart for the last six years or so. It's interesting that you mention, you know, this UK influence because, I don't know, this is my personal view, I feel that French magazines, they have more this spirit that you mention than actually British magazines these days. I mean, perhaps is this too controversial to say? It's very, very controversial, <laughs> Fernando, because what you're saying is that there's still baby boomers at the at the helm or Generation X is more likely at the helm of uh, French magazines. But because a, a lot of the UK magazines, even titles that I refer to, like The Face, which you know has resurrected and is, is going on still, old-timers like myself, so I'm very much a, a Generation X member, we remember The Face when there used to be you know long and in-depth articles written by people like Nick Kent. So those titles in England, I don't really see them today. I always see great, great things. You know, the face is on the pulse in terms of, of fashion and so on. But I'm still a bit frustrated. I have to go back to read the New Yorker or the Atlantic or Financial Times Weekend, which is a great read to have some in-depth articles and then the sort of trendy titles, that ref, you know, that reference that golden age, the 80s, 90s golden age. A lot of them I, I find are just lacking in, you know, in-depth articles. And Lawrence, tell us a bit more about your career. You, you mentioned that you spent some time here in London, but did you start in France or, or the UK? I grew up in France and in fact, I grew up uh, hippie parents. So we traveled around a lot, Switzerland, Italy, France, India. I was kind of cut off from any kind of popular culture. So no films, no outside music, no pop music, no, no TV, no comics, no magazines, nothing. And the whole magazine adventure started for me when I was 13, when all of a sudden I had access to these, uh, to these titles. 
And uh, by then I was in North London, as I said, with my mother and I was allowed to, you know, read magazines and watch TV and go to the cinema and buy cassettes and records. This was the 80s. And I just became obsessed with them, you know. So there was smash hits. I was maybe too young for the face, but I was lapping up the UK music press, you know, uh, the NME, Melody Maker. I suppose that made me realize that you could do very fun things in a magazine format. You could really just explore it and uh, do crazy things. These were all titles that were always having fun. They were having uh, proper articles about the people they were covering, but they would be um, you know, at ease with poking fun of them once in a while. It was all very good nature, very um, bienveillant, which is a, an important word for us in France at the moment, but very good natured, never, never mean, never nasty. And I suppose that I still have some sort of uh, you know, residue from uh, those adolescent reading experiences. And then I went to the University of Canterbury, uh, where I studied literature and film theory, so a very useful degree. And after that, I came to France. I figured I'd, I'd have more luck finding some work in France. And that's exactly what happened. Started off with an advertising title called Stratégie. And then a few titles later, I was at Technicart first as a journalist, and then we relaunched it with a few of the of the founders and a new investor. We launched it in 2016. So this is an adventure that started seven years ago. And uh, we've been going pretty strong ever since. We've been trying to um, take a mythic, legendary Paris title and, and give it a reboost. And I, I hope we've succeeded in that. And how often uh, Technicart comes, comes out uh, on the newsstand? It's a monthly magazine, so mm-hmm. in the, at the end of the first week of each month, if, if everything's gone well, we're in the, in the newsstands. And then, as well as the print version, of course, we're available as all sorts of digital versions and uh, a thing here called Caffeine. I don't know if you've got that in England, which mm-hmm. is like a, a Spotify of uh, magazine titles that we, we, we do quite well on. We're very... Um, a lot of our readers uh, tell us that they discover us through the digital. And then there's also, so these are all the, the, the paid readership comes from the print and the digital versions. And then we also have a lot of people, a lot of younger people, which is very, very important for a, a sort of a cutting edge avant-garde title such as ourselves, discover us through Instagram and the other uh, social networks. You also have other magazines under your helm, right? Besides Technicart, like uh, Schnock. Oh, the, so that was a that was a passion project mm. that, that I did in uh, 2011 with a, a friend of mine, Christophe, and that's published through a small publishing house called La Tengo and distributed very nicely distributed by Flammarion. So that was something I did on the side when I was a, a journalist at Technicart. And it took off. It had sort of critical success and sales success. It's like a book format, and it has eight, about 8,000 readers every three months. And what that really gave me the, the certitude of is when we did the Technicart reboot, we had a lot of people from advertising saying, who is your readership? How old are they? Are you a men's title? Are you a women's title? Are you this? Are you that? 
And because I'd seen with Schnock, which is a, to, to give your, uh, your listeners an idea, it's sort of a cultural version of the oldie. So it's very much about mm. things that took place in the 1970s, 1980s. Now we're, we're moving along in terms of decades, but it's very the oldie-ish. It's very fogey. Schnock means uh, the old fogey. What the sort of success, relative success of this launch gave me was the certitude that you didn't have to limit yourself to being a title for 40-somethings, for 50-somethings, that it was silly to try and say that, you know, we're going to be, uh, we had a lot of this at the, at, the, at the relaunch, people saying to us, oh, are you like GQ? Are you a, a men's title? Are you this? Are you that? And because I'd seen that with Schnock, which was ostensibly aimed at elder people, you know, we said it was for people over you know, 50, when in fact we saw that the readers you know, ranged from 25 to, to 85, with more people, uh, I'll admit, over over 40 or 50. But I'd seen that you could have a sort of wide-ranging readership. So when it came to do Technicart and we had these outside advertising people saying to us, media salespeople saying to us, oh, you have to be in a certain category. And we refused that. We wanted to be something more fluid, more um, all-encompassing. And with time, that's been proved right. You know, I think that titles now realize that they can be uh, fluid to take another term that's very uh, en vogue at the moment. So yes, I, I, I did do schnock and I, I, I still do schnock. That comes out once every uh, three months and it's a sort of a book format and in bookshops. That gave me the sort of um, will to do something without saying, oh, we're going to do a, a, a magazine. A lot of people are saying to us, you know, Technicart's been around since the 1990s. You should grow old with your readership. You should do this. You should uh, do something for over 40s. And I'm so glad that we didn't do that because I think that would have been the kiss of death. You know, we've really turned the magazine to trying and renewing and rejuvenating the readership. And people over 40 are very happy to read something that also is read by and has certain of its taste dictated by people who are 20, uh, you know, people in their 40s and their 50s who are in the creative industries, which is the case of a lot of our readers. They really like having that younger input. So thank you, Schnock, for that. You did the right choice. Uh, Lawrence, I have a you know, question here about the magazine market in France. As I told you, some, when I go to France, I don't know, I think it's quite vivacious. I see a lot of new titles. I think it's still quite an exciting market. You know, as a publisher, as an editor, would you agree with that? Yes, I mean, um, with time, when, you, when, when you're sort of a young gun starting out in media, you're going to be very obnoxious about your competitors and so on. But with, with time, you have an a, immense respect for people who've, you know, survived, who've reinvented themselves, who are, who are still there. That's, I think, one of the best qualities is, is staying power. And I have to admit that a lot of independent titles manage to stay on the bookshelves, and I'm sure you go in very trendy places like the, the Palais de Tokyo Library and these sort of places. And the titles you see there, they've existed for like decades, you know. I'm thinking of Purple, of Double, all these uh, Citizen Car, all these titles that are very, very trendy and that emerged in the 1990s. 
They're still going strong. I see that our uh, competitors and friends from society, the So Press Group, they just launched so many, so many magazines, and they've got this great strength and uh, and, uh, and and motivation to just keep print alive. And they're doing they're doing well. They've got a great readership, and I'm always discovering new titles. And then the big question is, are they going to stay a, a long time? But you know, things like Interlop, which I've seen recently, and I, I think that's uh, really really good. So. It's, I, I don't want to say anything too general, but like, you know, it's a difficult market or it's a vibrant market because I think that what counts for each founder of a magazine, each head of a magazine is to find their own footing and their own commercial footing and uh, uh, alongside that their own readership, their own community of readers. And once you get the balance right between the two, then it's a very, uh, very nice market to be in. So it's difficult if you don't get that balance right, and, uh, and we've seen a lot of uh, titles uh, close. But if you manage to get the delicate balance, the delicate equilibrium right between your, your your readership and the commercial, so the sales and all the advertising, then it's a really fun market to be in. And from the concierge this week, we had two fabulous people talking about their favorite local spots in Lisbon. Carlota Rebelo, Matt, our correspondent there, Gaia Lutz. Olá, Carlota. Welcome to Estrela, my neighborhood. <laughs> Lovely. So, should we go for a walk? Where shall we start today, Gaia? I think we can start with a coffee, very Portuguese, or an orange juice. Let's do it. We're just in a very small cafe called Boutique Doce, also known as the Café of Senhor José. It's a very local, very small cafe here in Estrela. And I wanted to start our walk here because it kind of reminds me of when I moved to Lisbon. So this little cafe is attended by everyone that lives in the neighborhood. And the display is just amazing. If you look back, everyone talks about pastéis de nata in Lisbon, but the amount of pastries there are. And I'm just looking here at this wonderful display. And Senhor José always explains to me every time I want to try something new. And I think it's a good starting point because up here in Estrela is quite a residential neighborhood, which hasn't changed too much over the years. But if you go down to Santos, you're going to find all your brunch spots full of eggs benedict. You can find all the modern food orders you might want. So there's something quite Portuguese about, you know, having a little orange juice as you've just ordered and just a small pastry rather than, you know, a full sit-down meal. Exactly. And standing up in the counter, chatting with your neighbors. You know, I, I listen to a lot of neighborhood gossip here. If you keep your ears open, you'll find out who is liked and disliked in the neighborhood just by standing here one hour. So now we've walked to a gallery and you might be able to even hear construction in the background. It just shows you how this neighborhood really is getting redeveloped. But this is a really interesting contemporary art gallery and of crafts and design that you chose for us to see. So this is Oju Gallery, and it's owned by a French-Portuguese lady. And she's doing a great job because it's just a tiny window here where she puts a spotlight on Portuguese craft. So every couple of months, this changes. And you'll see from tapestry to um, clay work to arts to design. And it's just a, a really nice little addition to the neighborhood that I think just goes well with this atmosphere. It's still somewhere that it's not a hustle and bustle. It's just when I'm walking by here, it's always somewhere I stop and just see what's new here. We've walked down from Estrela down to Rua de São Bento, which is 
this quite famous street here in Lisbon. It leads up to the parliament. You have the house of the Fado singer Amalia Rodrigues as well, and also a bunch of shops. So tell us about the first shop we're going to visit. Where São Bento is this notorious street. It sort of crosses several neighborhoods. And this street is really famous in particular for antique shops. And what is nice about it is that you can find sort of the shops full of bric-a-brac, where you can still find those finds from mid-century design, but also very established antique dealers. So we're just standing in front of uh, Galeria Besta Pereira, which is one of those quite established design galleries. So they have antiques, they have some modern furniture, they have paintings, they hold exhibitions. It's a must-stop here, but there are several others as well. And if you go further up, you'll find old piano shops, luthiers, and just all kinds of knickknacks that you can find in Hood São Let's explore. Where are we now? We just entered this quite amazing shop that has like a lot of glass and old ceramics. Tell me why you brought us here. So this is the Depósito da Marinha Grande. It's been here for over four decades. It's the first factory of glassware of Portugal. It's located in Marinha Grande, which is north of Lisbon. It's from the 1700s, established by Marquês de Pombal. And since then, it's become sort of this institution for glassware in Portugal. And, and I just love them. So we've walked to another location now. This is a lovely small square with a fountain in the middle. There's a few trees and it's just like surrounded by these beautiful heritage buildings. So we're in Praça das Flores and this is one of my favorite hangout spots for just a beer or a snack. It's very close to Estrela. If you notice, we just walked down through São Bento and up a little hill here. And what I really love about it is it's so typical and quaint, yet there's a good mix of this old and new Lisbon. So there's a lot of Portuguese people that come here to have a beer, to read a book. But as you can see, there are a lot of foreigners. There's, you know, a mix of Portuguese shops around us. And, you know, there's this lovely atelier over there called Flourish Textile Studios, which is also new. It's owned by a French and an Italian duo. And they do beautiful textiles with Portuguese materials. So they travel up and down the country to make cushions and tapestry. And I just love coming here and priming my appetite before lunch of a nice cold draft beer. We've now come to our lunchtime and we're in Susana, this really nice restaurant just by São Pedro da Pedreira here in Lisbon. Gaia, tell me more about this pick and uh, what you chose for our lunch. So let's start off where we are at our table because it's just under the signage that says Susana and that's the whole reason why this restaurant is called Susana is because its owner, Zé Saudade Silva, he found this old sign in an antique shop, hence the connection to the street we were in right now with São Bento and this belonged to an old brothel in Lisbon and he loved it so much that he kept it for many years and when he opened this restaurant of course he had to name it Suzanne and he had to hang it up and this is a second outpost opened last year it's very Portuguese very typical but always with a lot of sophistication in each dish everything is prepared with a lot of care and this particular restaurant it's all about the grilled everything is in a charcoal grilled and we both ordered something which I love which are secretos de porco which is in a very special part of the pig very thin with some garlic rice and a salad so I think you'll enjoy it, Carlotta. Thank you, Gaia. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. <laughs> so we finished our meal and Zé has actually joined us here for dessert and to tell us a little bit more about this restaurant. The idea was to make like a charcoal place. We use Iberian pork, abanico. is one of the main best sellers. 
We also have the rabbit with the kidneys and heart mayo. We also have fish, seafood. Tell us a little bit about what we ate for starters, because it was delicious. The dough of this pastry, it's um, from Cap Verde. It's uh, made out of corn flour. The filling is uh, fresh tuna. It's called a pastry with the devil inside, because usually it's super, super spicy. And this is not so spicy, so it can be suitable for everyone. Tell us a bit more what people can find here at Susanna. From Monday, we're ready to serve oxtail with mashed potato. We have beef tongue with black bean puree. We have spare ribs rice with turnip leaves, rice fish, razor clam rice also. Many things, you just have to come by and try Well, Gaia, this morning in Lisbon went by really fast and it's been great to get to know a bit of your neighborhood and get an idea of this local side of Lisbon that you might not get with travel guides. Lisbon is going through such a massive change. It's so great. It has this energy of a cosmopolitan capital. Every time more, it's an increasing energy. But it still has those hidden gems and it still has those streets where you find typical quintessential Portuguese things and I think I just wanted to show a little bit of that you know from antiques to a small cafe from Portuguese food with a twist and I think when you come to Lisbon you should definitely try to balance those out you know see a little bit of the new Lisbon and what's bustling and exciting but also take a time to explore those oldies but goldies. For Monocle Radio in Lisbon I'm Carlotta Rebello. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition on The Curator. The show was produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.